that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would both strengthen us and challenge us, Lord, and remind us of your purpose in our lives. And just anoint me as I minister, I pray. Lord, we also ask you to touch the Salinas family, you know, the sickness that is in that home. We ask you to heal them. We ask you to touch Brother Carlo, Lord, that you would heal his body as well. And Lord, any others of our church family that aren't well, that we're not aware of, we ask you to minister healing to them in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Wash, rinse, and repeat. Amen. Jesus often used parables or stories to communicate his message. And the great thing about parables is there's, there's layers in them. You know, you can read it once and, and get some understanding, and then you read it again and scratch a little deeper, and there's, it's, it's like an onion. There's more and more. Like So much of the Word of God is like that, that the Lord always has more for the... He said, if you're hungry, that you would be filled. And if we hunger and thirst for the things of his word, he will reveal them to us. And in this parable, the, a king prepares a royal wedding. No expense is spared and a guest list is carefully organized. And it's a parable that some of you are quite familiar with. The invited guests, however, treat the invitation with contempt. Some are too busy with their work. Others just simply don't take it seriously. And so the king poured out judgment upon those guests that were the first invited and set about adjusting his plans. His servants were sent out into the highway and were told to gather together both the bad and the good. Which is an interesting statement. I don't believe that it's a statement that two groups of people were being invited and that the good people would sit on one side of the hall and the bad people would sit on the other side of the hall. But rather, it's a statement that it didn't matter where they came from or who they were, only that they came. And when the king came, a certain guest was not wearing a wedding garment. And when he was challenged as to why not, he had no excuse. He was then roughly dismissed from the celebration. And for the sake of those that may not be familiar with this parable, if you do not understand the culture of the day, we might think that's a bit harsh or unfair. Perhaps this poor man's suit was at the dry cleaners. Perhaps he couldn't afford a new shirt or a, or a tie or a nice pair of shiny shoes. But the custom of the time, the culture dictated that the wedding garments were actually provided by the king for his guests, which meant that the guilty man had simply refused to wear it. It was not a lack of provision. There was a lack of willingness to conform. The parable seems possibly to reach back to the book of Zephaniah in the Old Testament where the Lord is not very happy with his people. And in Zephaniah 1, 7 and 8, it says, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, and he has bid his guests. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. Garments throughout the scripture are often symbolic. They represent something. Even describing the Lord, that language is used. And we, some of you might recognize this from a song that we sing, but the 104th Psalm in the first two verses says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. 
describes the, the light and the glory and the majesty of God as, as almost as if he's wearing it like a garment. Not that it made him glorious, but it's just it's the psalmist's limited vocabulary trying to communicate the majesty of God. And it doesn't matter if you have a silver tongue, you're still going to fall so far short of being able to accurately communicate the majesty and the glory of God. In Mark 5 and 30, we know the story of the woman with the issue of blood when her faith drove her to press through the crowd on her hands and knees. And in her mind, she declared that if she could just touch the hem of his garment, that she would be made whole. And if you read Mark 5 and 30, it says that Jesus, knowing immediately that virtue had gone out of him, he said, who touched my clothes? There was something about the fact that they were his clothes and the woman's faith that brought a miracle about. And often in the scripture, the condition of garments is a picture of the spiritual condition of a nation or an individual. When you study the Old Testament priesthood in the tabernacle, you'll see that the priests often had to wash their clothes as part of their approach to God. And even when somebody was found to be a leper and there was a hope that that disease had been cleansed, there was a lot of washing that was involved with that purification process. And you'll see that in a lot of applications throughout the Old Testament. And in Exodus chapter 19, Moses is preparing to go into the presence of the Lord, Mount Sinai, and receive the law. And in Exodus 19 and 10, the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. I'm not sure that the Lord was concerned about the grass stains on somebody's knee or whether or not they'd spilt a bit of lamb gravy from the last dinner party they'd had on their clothes or or they've been working in the garden and got a bit grotty but rather the instruction was symbolic of the need to be washed when we come into the presence of the Lord I don't think the Lord was too worried about how white their whites were or how bright their colors were but when he said to Moses tell them to wash their clothes he was saying, there's got to be something that's cleansed if you're going to approach me. There needs to be something that was unclean that is made clean. And there are many scriptures in the Bible that paint a graphic picture of our spiritual garments before we came to Jesus. Proverbs 30 and 12 says that there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet they are not washed from their filthiness. Isaiah 64 and 6, which many of you know, says that we are all as an unclean thing and our righteousness is as filthy rags. We do all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. The prophet's language is graphic. He said, when you think about how clean we are in our own self, when we stand in the light of God, it's like we're dressed in filthy rags. It's not just your old clothes. You know, I have a... I have a jersey at home that I wear around the house in winter because it's warm and it's completely falling to pieces. My wife and my daughter are embarrassed that I still wear it even inside the house because when I try to put it on, trying to find the right hole in the sleeve to put my hand through is difficult. Some of you men know what I'm talking about. Anybody feel a witness? Your wives want to throw out your old shirts and you want to hang on to them. But there's, I wouldn't wear that to church. In fact, 
I threatened to wear it down the shop and my family threatens to disown me. But it, it's, it's, it's just something that's at home with me. But spiritually, it's not even bad enough to represent my spiritual condition without the blood of Jesus Christ. Because my righteousness, which is almost an oxymoron because I don't actually have any, is those filthy rags. Spiritually, it's like I'm dressed in filthy rags. And it doesn't matter how well we present on the outside. The Bible says that it's the Lord that looks on the heart. Amen. And we read Luke chapter 15, a very well-known story of the prodigal son. It says, when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land. This is Luke 15, 14 to 16. And he began to be in want. doesn't mean that he just was going without a few things. Things were getting really tough. He went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country. And that man sent him into his field to feed pigs and he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat such was his hunger and his depraved state that he was willing to think about eating things that he would never have eaten in the past and no man gave unto him amen it doesn't exactly tell us what the state of his clothing was but i don't think it's too creative to think that he was in rags what he was wearing was worn out thin and torn and couldn't be replaced it's not a pretty picture, but it's communicating to us an idea of the filth that we're in before Jesus got a hold of us. And we need to be reminded sometimes, not that we might be offended, but this human nature has an ability to think, you know, I wasn't really that bad. I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't a terrible sinner. I just needed a couple of little modifications, a couple of slight course corrections. That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says that all of us, we're in filthy rags. Maybe not in the world's totem pole of sin, but in the sight of Jesus Christ, liars, thieves, fornicators, drunkards, idolaters, on and on and on. But fortunately for us, the description of our spiritual state doesn't end with a full stop, it ends with a comma. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he says, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Don't allow yourself to, to listen to the philosophy of the world. He said, and there's no fornicators. That's all immorality. No idolaters, no adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That has to do with homosexuality and all manner of sexual perversion that surrounds us. No thieves, no covetous, no drunkards, no revilers, no extortioners. None of them shall inherit the kingdom of God. And just in case you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm glad I'm not on that list. Paul said, such were some of you. But then he said, but you are washed. You're sanctified. I'm separated. You know, when something's clean, you try to keep it that way. You raise your kids. When they've had a bath, you don't let them go and play in the garden again. They say, can I go outside? No, you've had a bath already. Stay in the house. You're sanctified, separate, you're justified. What that means is that he sees us as righteous. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus. That's why it's so important that we baptize in Jesus' name. We're going to baptize a young lady in Jesus' name at the end of this service this morning. And by the Spirit of our God. Revelation 1 and 5 says, And from Jesus Christ Christ, 
who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Isaiah 61, the prophet spoke prophetically about the coming of Jesus and how that he would give us the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, for our broken, torn, disheveled spiritual state. He would wrap us in a reason to praise him and to worship him when he washed our sins away. And the end of the story in Luke 15 says that the young man came to himself, began to realize that the lowest position in the father's house was still so much better than where he was at. Amen. I'm happy to have the lowest position in the father's house rather than being out there in the mess of this world. And he comes to his father and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I'm not worthy anymore to be called thy son. But the father said unto his servants, kick this dirty piece of junk out of here. No, he didn't. He said, bring forth the best robe, a garment that would hide his wasted body, that would hide the evidence of his sin and his shame and wrap him. In a bed, not just something you're worried about, you know, not, not the old garment that you don't care if he trashes it. The best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Give him authority. Put shoes on his feet. You see, when we're washed in his blood, clothed with his righteousness, ready for the wedding supper of the king ready for the wedding supper of the king. In Revelation, in the first few chapters, the Apostle John is instructed to write to the seven churches of Asia. And in many ways, it's like he's given them a health report. The Lord's telling, he's saying, tell them what they need to fix. Tell them what they need to get ready. Tell them what they're doing okay, but tell them what they need to change. In Revelation 3, starting verse 1, he writes unto the angel of the church in Sardis, says, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. He said, You've got a reputation that you're alive, but you're actually dead. He said, Be watchful. Strengthen the things that remain, that are ready to die. He said, There's a bit of life left. He said, Revive that. For I have not found thy, work, thy works perfect before God. And then he went on and said, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. And then I want to draw your attention to this next couple of verses. He said, thou hast a few names. There's still some people left inside us which have not defiled the garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels again there is a graphic image of a garment it's not a suggestion that we should all come to church dressed in white robes but it's a picture of righteousness it's a picture of righteousness that he gives us but we have a responsibility to protect we have a responsibility to take care of it. But the thing is, even when you do your very best to take care of it, you've still got to go back to Him. Because that's why when we present ourselves to Him daily, 
as living sacrifices, as the Bible says that we should, we need to ask the Lord, wash us again. Refresh, renew, cleanse our garments. Wash me again, Lord God. You see, the statement, wash, rinse, and repeat, speaks of something that you do over and over and over again. And any of you that do laundry, any of you mothers looking after your kids, you know that it seems like it is dirty laundry is the living definition of eternal. never stops. Every load you do, it comes back. Every pile you think you've taken care of, they empty their wardrobe into the laundry. It's wash, rinse, and repeat. And as much as it is our obligation, I would say it is our duty, we are commanded to sin not. But God knowing that we are flawed, says, present your bodies, a living sacrifice over. I must find myself in his presence again and again, having myself cleansed because I cannot afford to live with defiled garments. Sometimes, if we're honest, we get to that point, like John said to the church at Sardis, there's a little bit of life left there. Breathe on that. Fan that flame. Drag that little bit of faith back into the presence of the King of Kings. Amen. Because when I go out and you go out into the world every day, surrounded by sin, He wants you to know you can be an overcomer. When Jesus said to them that overcome, he wasn't talking about something impossible. God will never require something that you cannot do. But you will only do it through him. Through the strength and the power of his grace and his mercy. Amen. But it requires me, if I'm going to be an overcomer, it requires me that I find myself at his feet each day. Saying, search me, Lord. Wash me again. Wash me again. And when we come, as we're going to this morning, to the communion table, the practice of eating and drinking these tokens that represent the Lord's body does not wash away our sins. It's very important we understand that. You cannot have a ritual that washes away sin. It does not make us righteous. But... As we'll get to in a few minutes, as a part of that process, we are commanded to examine ourselves. And it is in this opportunity, while communion does not take away sin, it is in this opportunity that we can examine our garments and we can search our hearts. And so although communion does not save us, it is a time to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what it cost to wash us and bring ourselves back into alignment. It is a time to examine our garments. And we take this time, this opportunity together. The instruction in 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll get to, talks about when you come together. So in this situation, is different from when each day we should present ourselves to Him one-on-one. There's also a place where we come and present ourselves to Him together. Amen. That between us, there would be a right spirit. There would be a right understanding. There would be a right heart. Amen. There's a reason why it's together, why we don't just 
have communion on our own in our house. I know there are places when people are isolated, there may be scope for that, but the principle of it is that it happens together. Luke 5 and 16, speaking of Jesus, said, He withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Now, most that's the King James Version. Most of the modern translations say that he often withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. In our lesson this morning, we talked about the genuine humanity of Jesus Christ and of his need to pray. And even as sinless as he was, I got to thinking about why he needed to pray so often. Why if he was sinless? But you see, because he experienced what you experience. He needed to pray like you need to pray, like I need to pray. Because even as sinless as he was, he walked daily amongst the people that would crucify him. And he knew it. Calvary was not a surprise for Jesus. He knew what his purpose was. He knew what he came to do. And each day he healed their sick, cleansed their lepers, even raised their dead, knowing that some of those same people would be in the mob that would cry, crucify him, crucify him. Now I ask the question again, why did he need to go alone and spend time with God? Because he had to begin each day being able to be exactly in perfect submission to the Lord so that even though he knew what would happen, he would minister, he would serve, he would heal, he would deliver. That's why Philippians says that he made himself of no reputation, took on him the form of a servant. And each morning when he got up, he walked amongst those crowds that he knew would yell for his death. And he touched them, opened their eyes, raised their children from the dead, spoke to the lepers and said, go and tell the chief priest, let them examine you. He had to do that every day because he had to walk amongst people. You see, I cannot be saved for you and you cannot be saved for me. There are some doctrines getting around in the world that suggest that we can possibly make donations that will impact uh, our families that aren't living for the Lord or even be baptized for our families that have gone on from this life. It's a nice idea, but it's not biblical. So you cannot be saved for me and I cannot be saved for you. I've got to have my own salvation. You've got to have your own salvation. But... We are getting ready for heaven together. So whilst we cannot be saved for one another, we are supposed to be in this thing together. And that's why we need to be repeatedly washed and walk together. If Jesus had to pull himself aside to face what was coming each day in that place. You know, we, we, let's be honest, we're human we cross each other sometimes. But I haven't heard anybody here request the crucifixion of another church member. I'm kind of glad for that. But if he was our example of having the form of a servant and ministering to the people that he knew would do that, we need to wash, rinse, repeat every day. Lord, wash me, wash me, wash me. Every day, 
God, yesterday was a good day. Yesterday was a bad day. I come to you to start another day, Lord. I need you to wash me again so we can walk together. Let's stand together this morning. Let's just lift our hands.